there, there's a whole team of us that try the case, but I'm the, the, the mouth. Um, while I'm telling you this, if anybody needs a lesson, we're going to finish last week's lesson, but we have an extra handout that goes along with it for this week, a synopsis on Paul. So raise your hands. We've got a bunch of hands raised down here, Mark. Um, <clears throat> so Thursday, my voice uh, uh, was this witness on the stand that I just didn't think much of at all. And Bob and I had been up all night Wednesday night plotting how we were going to destroy him. He's... Uh, <laughs> He claims to be a medical doctor from Florida. Uh, frankly, we don't think he's a medical doctor. In fact, I think my first question of him, cross-examining him, was something along the lines of, let's just tell the truth. You're not really a medical doctor. You're a professional witness, aren't you? And he said, no. And I said, well, you've made over $20 million a year. No, not a year. Over $20 million in the last five years being a witness. And he's, I said, you're the $20 million man, aren't you? And his response was, that that's not what my wife calls me. And um, sort of lets you know, we went from there, but I was losing my voice. And uh, it got to a point where I was telling the judge I was going to have to stand up and do objections in sign language. And um, fortunately, on Friday, they played videos all day, uh, they being the bad guys, uh, video depositions, so I didn't have to talk, and the judge sent me home. I'm much better today, but I do appreciate your prayers because uh, tomorrow the war begins again. Um, I was handed uh, two uh, daily grounds tickets to the Administaff Small Business Classic, a good any one day from Monday, October 4th through Sunday, October 10th. So that means they've got to be used today. If anybody might like these two, they'll be down here also, and that gets you onto the grounds. Um, Today we're going to talk about Paul's conversion, but we're going to spend a little extra time and just bring together some things about Paul. Uh, uh, as I talk, I don't have as much uh, voice, so you might be more prone to go to sleep than even normal. And if you do, please, uh, out of respect for your neighbors, don't snore too loudly. Now, <clears throat> the um, thing that I want you to remember as we go through this, and I've lost my remote control, so I get to, get to work the old hand out here. Um, the thing that I want you to remember as we go through this is Luke actually traveled with Paul. So as Luke writes in, in the book of Acts about Paul and Paul's conversion, it's not something Luke got third hand or fourth hand. It's not something that just uh, Luke had read about. It's something that Luke was intimately familiar with. In addition to having spent time with Paul, Luke spent a considerable amount of time in Jerusalem. And so Luke would have had interaction with a lot of the different players in Jerusalem and understood what really happened with Paul. Now, what I'd like to do before we get to Paul's conversion is take some passages of Scripture and even one passage that's not in Scripture and look at what we know about Paul. Let's put Paul into context and understand who Paul is and then we'll look at the actual conversion story. We're doing that with an eye much towards what Dorothy said this morning. An eye that you and I are not accidents. God doesn't have anyone here by accident. You're not even here this morning by accident. God didn't make you as an accident. You're not here by accident. What has gone on in your life to make you who you are is not an accident. You can take the good things that have happened in your life. And you can thank God for those good things because any good gift you've ever had or any good thing that's happened to you we know came from the Father who alone is good. 
and you can thank him for that. But you can take the horrible things that have happened in your life. Horrible things that have happened because of wicked, evil people. Horrible things that have happened because we live in a fallen world that has tornadoes and hurricanes and, and, and tragedy all around us. Horrible things that have happened just by circumstance without any, any malicious intent by anyone. But you take all of the horrible things and, and even though those are not from God, they certainly fit into His plan and His work for who you are and what He has for your life. So you can take the good, you can take the bad, but I'll go one step further. You can take the sin in your life, and I can take the sin in my life, things that we wish were not there, things that we would give all that we have if we could write them differently, if we could take that moment in time and live it with the wisdom we have now, or live it with the discipline we have now. You can take all of the sin in your life, and while it is not anything that God smiles over, indeed it cost him his son, it is something that God has full forgiveness for and is able to take and redeem and use. These are lessons that we get from the life of Paul, and these are lessons that we get this morning. So as we look at this, I want you to not just get interested in Paul, and I do hope you do. I hope that Paul fascinates you. There's a wonderful new book out on the life of Paul. If you had asked me a year ago for the best book on the life of Paul, I'd have sent you to F.F. F. Bruce, passed away now, but a great theologian <clears throat> who wrote, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. And I would say that's the best book on the life of Paul. You should get the book and read it. Today, I might tell you that that's not the book I'd read first. There is a new book out by a fellow named John McRae, M-C-R-A-E or Y, I don't remember. Um, he taught at Wheaton College, which is a Christian university up in, in uh, near Chicago, in Wheaton, Illinois. And he taught a course in the seminary there on Pauline theology for years. He's maybe the only person I've ever met who's gone to the Holy Lands more than Debbie and Mike Riddle. Um, uh, he's had 27 visits there over the years. I studied Hebrew with one of his sons, Barry McRae. And uh, uh, John McRae has written this book that's just out by Baker Publishing. I suspect there should be copies at Grapevine. If not, you can certainly order it off Amazon.com. It's on Paul. And it is a phenomenal book, incredibly readable. And the neat thing about it is he's got pictures of all of these different things that he's taken himself over the years. So they're actual photographs. Um, but I hope you get into Paul. <clears throat> Paul? Yeah, there may be more to the title than that, but that's the part I remember. Um, <laughs> she, she asked if it had a title, uh, for those of you in the back. And I, it, it's got Paul in the title. So get on Amazon.com and type in Paul when... John McRae, and you'll find it. And if not, email me, and I'll email you. I meant to bring my copy, but uh, I left my memory at home because I forgot my memory. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the book is phenomenal. I hope you get into Paul this morning. I hope I'm able to present him well enough to where you can see that he was a real person and not just some saint or, or apostle that, that got uh, uh, a lot of churches named after him. Because he was, he was a flesh and blood person. I mean, this is a fellow whose sister lived in Jerusalem. You know, you know I, he's, he had family. One of his nephews came up to him and saved his life one time. 
And, and so I, I want to talk to you about Paul in a way that hopefully you'll get into him. But as you listen, I don't just want you to get into Paul. I want God to get into you. Because I want everyone in here to understand what it means to encounter Jesus Christ in your life. <clears throat> if there's anything that makes me who I am, in any good way that I am, if there is such, it's not me. It's an encounter with Jesus Christ in my life. The thing that's hardest for me to convince people of as I interact with people is Christianity is not a religion to me. It's not a set of rules for me. It truly is an encounter with the creator of the universe in the only form in which I could understand him really. And that's as a man. And I really believe this. This is not something I teach as an academic exercise. I truly believe in every fiber of my being that there is a God who loves me and you and calls us by name and wants nothing more right now than to be invited into your heart and to dwell with you and to live with you and to interact with you. I truly believe that with all my heart. So let's look at this together. And let's first start by looking at the passages that tell us what we know about Paul. Um, in the timeline, we've already dealt with <clears throat> the ascension and Pentecost and the healings, the Sanhedrin discipline of the early apostles. And as we get to about 33, 34, into 35, 36, 37, that's the time range we'll be talking about today with Paul. Um, this is in the context of Acts in the persecution and the expansion of the church that we've been talking about. Now, what do we know about Paul? First of all, um, let's, I meant to put this later, but this evidently came first. Uh, this is part of the, I lost, lost my memory. Um, <clears throat> there is a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. This book was written about 150 or 160 A.D. Okay, so this would have been written within 100 years of Paul's death. It was originally written by an elder in the church who claimed he found a writing of Paul's. The people were able to prove that the elder had written it and it was not actually Paul's writing. And so the elder was disciplined and rebuked and he lost his position within the church for life. But the people still thought that the stories themselves were accurate. It wasn't he was rebuked because he'd written something inaccurate. He was rebuked because as he wrote it, he claimed that Paul had written it, when in fact Paul had not. So with that as background, it's an interesting story to read, and you can read it. Uh, 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 it's uh, in a number of different places, and I can help you find it, or you can borrow some of my, uh, if you would like. But there's a passage that describes the Apostle Paul because Paul is going into a town and Onesimus is going to meet him. And, and Onesimus has never been met Paul before, so Paul was described to him so that Onesimus would know what he looked like and recognize him. It doesn't say he'll be the guy in the yellow shirt with the glasses. But it does say something about Paul, which is interesting to me. <clears throat> The guy, Onesimus, recognizes Paul because at length they saw a man coming, namely Paul, of a low stature. That's um, 
polite translation. In our colloquial talk, we would say he was short. Bald. Could be shaved, but probably not. Bald. Um, on the head. Um, which gives hope to people like Lewis. <laughs> Crooked thighs. Could also be translated kind of bow-legged. Okay? Handsome legs, considering the fact they were crooked. <laughs> Hollow-eyed, significant because I believe, and this is speculation, in fact, this is wild-eyed speculation, um, I believe Paul probably had great vision difficulties. Paul in one letter says at the end of the letter, see how, how I write in my own hand with large letters? We'll see later on in Acts that Paul uh, says something that's, that's kind of sassy, to the high priest, and Paul gets struck because of it, and Paul's answer was, I'm sorry, I didn't know that was the high priest I was talking about. Because even though he was nearby, you think about it, if I took these off, and I've had a corrective eye surgery, if I didn't have corrective eye surgery, I wouldn't know Ray from Betty on the front row. Okay? And, and I mean, I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell anybody. I, I, can't, I couldn't see the big E on the chart, you know. Paul, I think probably, we know Paul had some physical infirmity that he prayed for healing on three times and was never healed because of what he says is, quote, thorn in the flesh in Corinthians. But uh, um, he was hollow-eyed. Um, he had a crooked nose. He was full of grace for sometimes he appeared as a man, sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. Um, as we read that description, he sounds like he would have been pretty ugly to me. The ironic part is, is what's pretty today, or handsome today, is not what was handsome then. A crooked nose was actually quite attractive. In fact, some early translations you'll find of other people, they describe some folks as having the Roman nose. And the Roman nose was kind of hooked at the end. And that was a really cool thing if you had one of those. Um, uh, being bow-legged was actually a compliment. And that's why it says, crooked thighs, handsome legs. You know, I guess you kind of had the John Wayne swagger or something. I don't know. Um, so we have this from Paul. The Bible doesn't give us any description of what he looked like. So this is our limit, is something that was written within 100 years of his death and uh, certainly at a time where people would still have had a good idea of what he looked like. Would we recognize him coming in today? Maybe not, but uh, for what it's worth. We know that Paul was, okay, now how did I lose this? I had, I had other things here. Okay, we're going to have to make a change. Hold on. Um, I'm sorry, y'all. But how long have we been doing this class? Like two weeks? Two, two years? <laughs> this is like the first time. Okay, we're going to start this here instead, and then we'll go back in a minute. In Acts 21.39, Paul says, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. No ordinary, a citizen of no ordinary city. If you read the old King James... It said, no mean city. And I used to think, wow, a lot of nice people there because I didn't understand mean in the sense of mathematics in the ordinary or the average. It was not an ordinary city. So this is where Paul is from. We know in Acts 22.3, Paul said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. He's in Jerusalem when he's speaking. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as you are 
today, as any of you are today. <clears throat> in Acts 22, 27, and 28, the commander of, of uh, a Roman legion goes to Paul and says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes, I am. The commander says, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. And Paul answers and says, yes, but I was born a citizen. And then, last passage. In Philippians 3, Paul's talking about people. He says, do you have cause to, to, to boast in the flesh? Well, I have more cause to boast in the flesh. And ultimately, Paul's point is, but all of this I count as rubbish or garbage in light of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. So he's not ultimately boasting, but he says, if you want to boast, I could boast in the flesh more than all of you. And that I could do that boasting, and yet I don't, is significant because it shows how important it is to know Jesus. That's the context of the Philippian passage. In the context then of that passage, Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. He'll say that twice in Acts also. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He was good. He was a squeaky clean guy. Um, okay, now we've got to do this again to get back up to the other slides. I don't know how those got moved down there, but excuse me. So, now, let's look at what these passages teach us about Paul. First of all, Paul is born in Tarsus, no mean city, no ordinary city. Tarsus is, um, that picture just doesn't do it justice. See, there's his house. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Strabo was a writer at the time Paul lived, and a Roman writer, and Strabo was a geographer. By that, he would write about various places, points of geography uh, in the Roman Empire. And about the city of Tarsus, Strabo wrote, the people of Tarsus have devoted themselves so eagerly, not only to philosophy, but also to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed even Athens or Alexandria. See, Tarsus as a city was most famous for its educational university. Tarsus's main export were teachers. Tarsus was a very cosmopolitan, a very well-to-do city, and it was a city that taught teachers, and then the teachers would go out from the university to all points of the Roman Empire. Tarsus, because it was an educational university town, we would call it, had, had a great intellectual atmosphere and was famous for it. And that's what Strabo chooses to write about as he writes about Tarsus. It, it, Strabo says even more so than Alexandria or Athens, which were considered cultural centers of, of uh, philosophy. Philosophy was an entire a subject. In fact, it was even an occupation back then. It went hand in hand with rhetoric, which was talking and talking persuasively. And, and talking in ways of teaching. And that was the main thing that Tarsus was famous for. Now today, Tarsus is not famous for that as much as it is something else. If we look at it on the map, um, this is Jerusalem in the lower right-hand corner in Judea. Um, down in the bottom here would be Egypt if we had it. That's the Mediterranean Sea. As you go up north of Jerusalem and you, you take the you know, it, it's almost like a, a backward sea. As you go up the back of the sea, you go to Syria 
and Antioch, and then you cross over, and the top part of that is modern Turkey. And Tarsus is just in the bend right up there, in the top right-hand corner on the coast. Um, uh, Tarsus is part of modern Turkey. It's still a town. You can go there today. Um, uh, Tarsus is um, about 10 miles from the coast on the Sidness River. Now, the Sidness River is probably more famous for us um, uh, than, than most anything else in Tarsus because about 40 years before, I guess maybe 46 years B.C., um, and I may be wrong by a year or two, but it's around then, Mark Antony, the Roman emperor, was there in Tarsus when Cleopatra came to visit. And they pushed her in a boat up the Sidness River to Tarsus, and she was dressed like Aphrodite. It's in Act 2, Scene 2 of the play by Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet, uh, not Romeo and Juliet, he, same author. Uh, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra was the name of that play. Um, and he writes about it, but you don't have to take it from him. He took it from another writer uh, uh, that was much more contemporary who talked about how Cleopatra came up dressed like the goddess Aphrodite and wooed Mark Anthony. That happened there in Tarsus. Tarsus was a significant town with a significant reputation. It was an ancient town. It had actually been settled about 2000 B.C., and there was about a five or six hundred year period where maybe it had lied dormant after an attack, but it was resettled uh, uh, well 800, 900 years before Christ. And so it was an old city. That's where Paul was from. So Paul, you've got a man here. He's Jewish, yes. <clears throat> and we'll get to the Jewishness. But he is from Tarsus, no ordinary city, an extraordinary city, a city where he would have learned philosophy, he would have learned rhetoric. We'll find out later. Paul's from quite a well-to-do family probably as well. And so he would have had the benefit of knowing these kinds of things. Um, when Paul ultimately gets to Athens and starts preaching the gospel to the Athenians, he quotes Greek poets. He would have memorized these things growing up in Tarsus in the schooling system and everything. Um, Paul also was a Roman citizen. That was a significant thing. There were several ways you could become a Roman citizen. Historically, the way you did it was if you were born in the city of Rome and you were a free person. If you were a slave born in the city of Rome, no luck, no dice. You're not a citizen. But to be a Roman citizen, initially you had to be born in the city of Rome as a free person. Over time, as the Roman Empire expanded, you could also buy your right to citizenship under certain circumstances, which included owning property. Also, the emperor, if you did some special task or service for the emperor, the emperor had the ability to bestow upon you citizenship. We don't know how Paul got his, but Paul got his, I mean, how Paul's family got his. Paul got his citizenship by birth, which means Paul's father was a Roman citizen. If you are a Roman citizen and a man, and you have a child, the mother could not do it, sorry. But if you're the man and you have a child, <clears throat> you have 30 days in which to go register your child with the city authorities as a Roman citizen. And they would take and, and, and form a, a, a tablet that, that was in two pieces that kind of opened up. And that you, you'd get a birth certificate, in essence, that was also a certificate of citizenship. And you were enrolled in the city. When you did that as a Roman citizen, you got three names. You had to be listed with all three names. Uh, your, your forename or your first name, we don't know Paul's forename, his first name. Your family name, we don't know Paul's family name. 
and then you had to have a Latin common name. And for Paul, that would have been Paulus in Latin or Paulos in the Greek. And, and that was Paul's ordinary name. Now, because Paul was Jewish, he got a fourth name, too. He was given a Hebrew name. If you have Jewish friends or family, or if you're Jewish, um, I don't know, Philip, did your parents give you a, a Jewish name also? They did not. A lot of Jewish families will give their children a Hebrew name in addition to their, their um, three names that we now have. Um, so we don't know Paul's, uh, we know Paul's Hebrew name. It was Saulus or Saul in the Hebrew. Um, uh, Paul would have had proof of his citizenship in the diptych, which is that, that tablet, the, the, the two-folded tablet. Whether he carried it around with him or whether it was kept in a family vault, we don't know. I doubt he carried it around with him. If you claimed to be a Roman citizen and you were not, that was a capital offense and you got killed. So it's not something you would ordinarily do. But uh, Paul certainly had his Roman citizenship in his three names. Um, now, what does it mean back then to be a Roman citizen? There were certain rights you had as a Roman citizen that you would not have otherwise. Paul's rights as a Roman citizen extended throughout the empire. Wherever the Roman Empire was, a Roman citizen had their rights, and the rights could not be uh, abridged. One of the rights was to a fair public trial. And the trial, actually, you had a right to have the trial within the court system of Caesar himself, the emperor. And we'll see later on in Acts, Paul at one point appeals to Caesar and says, put me into the Caesaric court system. And Paul gets sent to Rome for his trial. It was a right you had as a Roman citizen. There were also certain punishments that you were exempt from. Roman citizens were not allowed to be chained. Roman citizens were not allowed to be flogged and beaten in public. Now, Paul ultimately will get lashings in the synagogue multiple times. Synagogue lashings would always be, um, uh, typically they would say 40, but it was always 39. It would be 40 minus 1. However, number of lashings you got under the synagogue system had to be divided by 3 because it was a divine number of lashings and a divine punishment. So, the, so Paul would get 39, or you could get uh, 24, or some number that was divisible by 3. But that Paul got those lashings, in spite of his Roman citizenship, is because Paul subjected himself to the Jewish faith. When, and, and we'll get to this more. In, uh, actually, we're not getting anywhere. I'm sorry. I get real interested in this stuff, and I just start talking. Um, <clears throat> another thing, you, you could not be summarily executed as another right. Um, so these are rights Paul used sometimes, but not all the time, because sometimes Paul was submissive to the Jewish court system, even though he could have removed himself from it. Paul says he was brought up in Jerusalem, trained under Gamaliel. Brought up doesn't necessarily mean that as a child he was reared there. It could mean that he went there as a teenager. He would not have started studying under Gamaliel until he was a teenager. We know Paul's sister at a later time lived in Jerusalem as well. So it's very likely he would have gone there to stay with family. Um, Gamaliel himself, we talked about last week, he was a top echelon rabbi. He was, there were, there, at the time of Jesus, there were two main rabbinic schools of thought, the school of thought of Hillel and the school of thought of Shammai. Um, Hillel was the liberal. Um, he, he came from Babylonia, and, and he was much more loose in the way he interpreted the law. Uh, Shammai was the legalist. Shammai um, uh, is, was, the followers of Shammai were the ones who very clearly were going to put Jesus to death. 
the followers of Hillel were a little looser because they were trying to understand how the, the they, they didn't walk away from the law, but they tried to understand how the law would work. So, for example, if the law said that you're supposed to come three times a year to Jerusalem, and yet after the dispersion, you live in, in uh, Italy, and you're just barely making enough money to put food on your table, Shammai would say, you are, are a horrible, wicked person destined for hell because you don't come to Jerusalem three times a week. Hillel would say, you know, there are exceptions that can be made when economically you're not able to do it. So, well, anyway. Um, <clears throat> Gamaliel, whom Paul studied under, was a student of Hillel, the looser school of thought. Okay? Um, Paul says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. There were three main sects of Judaism at the time. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. We get this from a Jewish historian who wrote about 100 AD. His name was Josephus, and you can get his books uh, translated uh, at uh, Grapevine or any number of places. But he has a book called The Antiquity of the Jews where he writes about Jewish history. And in the process of writing about Jewish history, he explains the religious differences between them. The Pharisees, for example, believed in angels and demons and, and uh, um, a resurrection from the dead. Um, uh, the Sadducees did not. And, and we saw that with Jesus because the Sadducees came to tempt Jesus with their own theology and Jesus put them down uh, or put them in their place with it and explained why they were wrong. Paul was of the Pharisees. Um, uh, the Sadducees believed that every man does as he chooses. The Essenes were strict predestinarians. They thought everything was predestined. The Pharisees were the middle ground. They thought, yeah, predestination's there some, but so is free choice. And so there's some interesting things we know about the Pharisees. But the Pharisees were very, very zealous to the law. When Israel as a nation was starting to become uh, Hellenized or become Greek or become more... Uh, uh, lose its distinctive Jewishness around 200 B.C., 100 B.C. That's when Pharisaism arose because these were the people who kept the tradition. And uh, we think of Pharisees with distaste in our mouth, don't we usually? If I just said to you, would you want to eat lunch with a Pharisee, other than the fact that you may be curious at what they're going to wash their hands with beforehand, how many of you would think just normally, oh, the Pharisees, those are the people that had so many problems with Jesus? Uh, I would think that way, but for the fact that Paul maintained he was a Pharisee to the end. Paul never converted from Judaism. When Paul became a Christian, it was not a conversion. It was more a calling. For Paul, Christianity was not a new religion from Judaism. For Paul, Christianity was Judaism. Fulfilled. And so... <clears throat> um, uh, let's see, origins most respected of people. Uh, Paul's of the tribe of Benjamin. That means a couple of things. First of all, it means Paul could actually trace his lineage. He could trace his heritage. He could trace his ancestry tree all the way back through the captivities and all the way back to Benjamin. Um, that's kind of incredible. Uh, it also was significant because Benjamin was one of the tribes that stayed faithful to God when the kingdoms divided you'll recall, and Judah stayed. Benjamin stayed with Judah. It is from Benjamin that King Saul, the first king of Israel, came, which was considered an honor, even though, again, in our mindset, we think, ooh, Saul, he was the bad king. They didn't think that way back then. He was a wonderful king who lost control of himself and wasn't able to handle the blessings of God. But it was an honor for, Saul, for Paul to be named after King Saul. 
Um, Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. By that, Paul is saying that, that um, there, were, there were Greek Jews who had learned the Greek language and lived a Greek culture and a Greek lifestyle and would attend a synagogue that, that was conducted services in Greek. They would read the Old Testament in the Septuagint in Greek. But there were also those who maintained their Hebrew uh, language. They would speak Aramaic. They would attend Hebrew synagogues. They would read Torah. We know Paul could read the Greek. In fact, there's one point in Acts later where Paul starts talking to the Roman commander and the Roman commander says, Oh, you speak Greek? Because Paul obviously was talking to him in Greek. And Paul says, Yes, I do. Could I please address these people? The Roman commander says, Sure, talk away. And then Luke says, Paul started speaking in Aramaic to the people. Um, so Paul knew his Greek, and he quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament at times, but he also knew his Hebrew and was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, okay. <clears throat> now, um, let's look at Paul's conversion story. It happens in Acts chapter 9, and it's an incredible story. We'll get to look at it a couple more times because Paul repeats the story, and Luke writes it twice more times in Acts, I think in 22 and 26. But um, in Acts chapter 9, Paul has been breathing out murderous threats against the people, um, by the people, the Christians. And so Paul has been arresting the Christians in Jerusalem and putting them in jail. Paul was there when Stephen was stoned, condoning the stoning and the killing of murdering of Stephen, the first uh, martyr. And so Paul decides he's going to do even more to get these Christians off the streets and out of the way. And Paul says, um, I, I went to the high priest. And Paul's a pretty hot guy to be able to walk into the high priest. Says, and I went to President Bush and I said, George, I would like... I mean, you know, He goes to the high priest himself and gets letters from the high priest authorizing him to go to Damascus and arrest any followers of, quote, the way, close quote. That's what Christianity was first called at this point in time, the way. It wasn't called uh, the church yet in, in this sense. Uh, uh, it wasn't called uh, any denominational church or, or uh, uh, um, any type of a Catholic uh, church or a universal Catholic, meaning universal church or anything. It was called the way. And so Paul's persecuting followers of the way. And, and um, in fact, there's a church out in California that calls itself now Church of the Way. And uh, that's where they get it from. We know from Paul's later story, it's about noon. Paul's on the road to Damascus and he's getting near Damascus when this bright light shines. And Paul falls to his face. And Paul hears this voice speaking apparently in Aramaic saying, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth. And the experience just stops Paul dead in his tracks. Because Paul is literally going to throw more of these people in jail. And Paul thought he was doing this for God. Paul thinks he's doing it for God. And yet, Paul finds out from a divine revelation, seeing the Lord Jesus, that he's not. Um, Paul has blinded eyes from this. And Paul is instructed by Jesus to go on into Damascus to Straight Street. Now, Damascus claims, and may be, to be the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. And you can go to Damascus today, and Straight Street is still there. And it's still called Straight Street. 
Um, but anyway, so Paul's told to go to a street called Straight, or what we would say, Straight Street. Go to Straight Street, and there's going to be a man who's going to take care of you and tell you what to do. So Paul goes to Straight Street and stays in the house of, I think, Judas or some fellow there. And um, uh, Ananias, who is a godly man uh, in Damascus, a Jew, a godly Jew, but also a Christian, Ananias, God appears to him in a vision and says, you need to go over to Straight Street, this house, and there's this guy there named Saul, and he's blinded, and I want you to lay hands on him and pray for him and uh, tell him that, you know, this is what's going on. And <clears throat> Ananias says, well, Lord, I've heard of this guy, and he's killing us. He's not a good guy, and you, you may want to think this through. And God says, well, I've thought it through, and this guy, yeah, he's who you think he is, but that's the old him. And he's going to be my light to the Gentiles, and he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Ananias goes and finds Saul, lays hands on him and prays. Saul, meanwhile, for three days now, has been blinded, hadn't eaten a thing, hadn't drinking a thing. The scales fall from his eyes, and before Saul, Paul, eats or drinks anything, he arises and goes and is baptized. And then he eats and drinks. What happens after that, I'm going to cut to the chase here. And we'll look at what Acts details more next week. But what happens after that ultimately is Paul becomes the central reason beyond any other human being save Jesus of Nazareth and perhaps Peter because of Pentecost. Paul becomes the reason, the, the, the vehicle whereby God creates his church. Paul goes all over the known world and takes the gospel. Paul is able to teach the gospel to Jews and he's able to teach it to Greeks because look what God did in Paul. Paul is a fella who's got one leg firmly planted in the Jewish world. The gospel of Jesus Christ was not a new religion. It was the fulfillment of the faith that God had been dispensing since the time of Abraham. It was not a new religion. Let me say it again. Paul did not convert in a traditional sense to Christianity. Paul, in his Judaism, answered a call. If that's for me, I'm not here. Um, <clears throat> the um, Paul has got one leg firmly entrenched. I mean, he studied it. He's a Pharisee. He knows the law like nobody's business. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the most famous rabbi of his day. He is in the crowd. He's probably part of the Sanhedrin. He is part of the ruling class. He's got the money, he's got the family history, and he's got the Jewish faith like nobody's business. Who better than Paul could understand how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had talked about? Nobody. Unlike Peter, unlike John, unlike James, unlike even Jesus himself, Paul was specifically reared and a student. He got the rich education from the finest available teachers to understand Judaism. And yet, this man, who is so wholeheartedly devoted to God that he would kill for God, 
who so wholeheartedly understands the Jewish faith that he has spent his life studying it and in allegiance to it. This same man is a Roman citizen from Tarsus who understands and speaks Greek fluently, who knows and has studied the Greek poets and how the Greeks think, who understands philosophy and rhetoric, who knows how to give a good polished speech, who understands what the greater world is like outside of Jerusalem, who's born in it, who's lived in it, and who is a citizen of it, who through his Roman citizenship has the right to travel unhindered throughout the Roman world. God takes this unique man with one foot in the the Bible and one foot in the Greek world, the Roman world, and yet united as one man, and God takes him with all of his past, that includes his killing the Christians and persecuting the church, sins for which Paul grieved till the day he died, sins for which Paul said made him the least of all the apostles, and yet God takes this man with his unique talents and abilities and uses him like no one else ever. Paul says later that he was called from before birth by God. And if I could give you one thing to take home today, it's this. So are you. And so are you. And so are you. And so are you. You were called by God before birth. You are not an accident. And all of the crud and all of the good and the things that are bad and the things that, are, that you've messed up on, all of it together makes you who you are right now today. And I promise you, I promise you with every depth of my being, I was told by seven people, don't teach today. You've got to save your voice for tomorrow. I wasn't able to talk yesterday very well at all. I said, no, I'm teaching because I want to tell you, I don't know who's going to be here, but I have a very clear message for you this morning. God wants you in relationship to Him. He's not looking for you to become a Baptist. He's not looking for you to become a, a Methodist. He's not, he wants you to be a Christian. He wants you to accept Jesus Christ in your life. And for those of us who have, He wants you to accept that right now He has a call for you. In this point in history, the God who writes history is saying, I want you. I have something for you to do. And nobody else has the time, the talent, the ability, the circumstances. It's right for you and nobody else. And do you know, when my son Will was born, Mom was real good at instilling in us as kids that God has purpose in your life. When my son Will was born, I realized this may or may not be it. But the whole big thing that I've been taught since birth I was born to do may be to love my son. So when I say God has something big for you to do that only you can do, it might be something that in your eyes seems so trivial. But in God's plan, it's not. You may be rearing a Paul. Or you may be working next to someone who's going to rear a Paul. But God's got a call on your life. And I urge you to accept it. Would you pray with me?
God, thank you so much for this morning and the blessing that we have of coming together, united in Christ, with your Holy Spirit present, to, to clean out our ears to hear your voice, to take the scales from our eyes to see what you have for us and who you are, to soften our hearts that have gotten hard over the years of pounding, to soften our hearts to be receptive to your love and your message and your purpose. It is my prayer by the blood of Jesus that your Holy Spirit will pierce to the marrow of our bones and will convict us of what we need to be with you. Lord, be in our lives. Be in our hearts. Be not just our Savior, but be the Lord of our lives. We pray in Jesus. Amen.